Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Pushkin. It's been nearly four years since Drive-By Truckers released their pissed-off, politically charged album, American Band. That record was the Rebel Yell, full of songs that reflected life and injustice during the Trump era. And judging from their latest release, The Unraveling, it's clear the Drive-By Truckers have moved from anger into a state of grief. The Unraveling is the Drive-By Truckers' 12th album. The band's two lead vocalists, Mike Cooley and Patterson Hood, both grew up in rural Alabama. Patterson's dad, David Hood, was the basis for the Swampers, one of the most famous studio house bands of all time, who are officially known as the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. They backed artists like Aretha Franklin, the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, and Paul Simon. But Patterson explains to Bruce Headlam in this interview why he never talked about his dad's job until he was in his 30s. Patterson and Mike also play songs from their new album, most of which are protest songs inspired by the current political climate and conversations they've had to have with their kids about it. And as you'll hear, they've had to rethink their live set lists after fans started waving the Confederate flags at a festival they were playing alongside one of their favorite rappers. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Mike Cooley and Patterson Hood in conversation with Bruce Headlam. We're here with Mike Cooley and Patterson Hood who for more than 20 years have been the leaders and songwriters for Drive-By Truckers. Uh, Songwriters doesn't seem to quite capture it, almost. You guys have been so prolific, and you write with such strong themes. Uh, It's 
it's easier almost to think of you as novelists with guitars, I think, because you've done so much work. Uh, tell me where this song came from. The song came from um, a uh, stopover on an off-ramp off I-90 outside of Gillette, Wyoming. And uh, I, don't, I don't write a lot on the road. I don't write a lot of songs on the road because it, 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 it tends to be hard with on a bus with you know, 11 people and and uh, all the loud noises and music playing and stuff. But um, but we uh, were on our way from Sioux Falls, uh, South Dakota to Missoula and uh, taking the required, the legally required bus stop where the driver hopefully sleeps for a few hours. Yeah, those and, are pretty uh, good laws, actually. It's a good law. <laughs> and, uh, uh, we've seen the other side. Nice the union, <laughs> union guys. Yeah, we've, we, we, we've seen yeah, the we, other side. We, yeah, we, we've seen not abiding by them. Yeah, mm-hmm. we, we had a driver one time go from Minneapolis to Seattle nonstop. Wow. And, uh, I don't. I don't even know if he peed. I mean, he just went, and uh, yeah. and it was a little terrifying. But uh, but so we were we were stopped at a Holiday Inn Express just on an off ramp. I mean, it could just as easily have been somewhere in Alabama or Arizona, other than how cold it was, and because uh, it was wintertime, it was January, and it was it was nice and cold, and we were hungry, and we were walking to, uh, going to walk to this, like, Mexican restaurant a couple blocks away. There was the only thing on that off-ramp that wasn't a chain, mm-hmm. and uh, there was, like, three stars on Yelp, you know, sold, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> And uh, we met in the lobby, and we're walking. When I walked out of the door with, like, patches of snow and ice, you know, in the parking lot, our bus is parked under this giant billboard that said the Oasis Tanning Salon. And I don't know how that became a song, but by the time we got to the restaurant, I wrote the first verse on a napkin. And after I ate, I went back to the hotel room and uh, or motel room and, and wrote the rest of the song that afternoon. Mm -hmm. And that kind of opened the floodgates for the songs that I wrote on this album because I, I, up to that point, was having a real hard time wrapping my head around how I wanted to approach writing about this crazy time that we're all trying to live through right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, your last album, uh, American Band, was also written about an earlier part of the crazier time. Right, right. Back, um, in, back and, in the good old days when we thought it sucked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, parts of that album uh, seem to be written uh, more in sorrow than in anger. Um, you seem to have become a little easier with your anger in this one. It's a tough, tough album. It's, it's funny because I, I almost almost have taken the opposite thought on it. I, I love hearing that, hearing it. I love hearing how different people gauge it and react to mm-hmm. it, you know, because because from my point of view, I thought of the last record as more the angry one, and this is more just the sad one. It's just like, now now what? What do we do now, you mm-hmm. know? And uh, so, so much of the, so many of the songs I wrote on this record were directly inspired by conversations with my kids and uh, trying to raise your family and you know, in all of this, and uh, and and you know the questions they had about different things. You know, talking to you know my kids about the lockdown drill they had in school. You know, mm-hmm. and and uh, and my son had all these questions about you know if if someone was going to take him away from his mommy and I and put him in a cage and a holding. I mean, he was literally he was worried about that. You know, mm-hmm. and and. 
you know, first I comforted him and told him that that wasn't going to happen, which led to the really uncomfortable, unpleasant conversation about why. You know, and, and, you know, the fact that, you know, they aren't taking little white kids away from their parents and doing that. And mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and the look on his face as you could see him trying to wrap his head around that concept. And uh, it was just heartbreaking to me, you know, and that that directly led to, you know, at least one, if not more of the songs on the record. Mm-hmm. And some of the songs and what you just played is not an example of that, but a lot of the songs take the form of really protest songs yeah. in a very old-fashioned way, which is it's something of a departure for you guys. Yeah, I guess. You know, we've always, I've always thought of our band as political and, and mm-hmm. my songs as, as, as political, but, you know, so often it was like done in the form of telling a story, often a story set in a different time and place, you know, mm-hmm. almost like the Chinatown, you know, the way the movie Chinatown used the 30s noir, you know, format to to tell, to talk about, you know, what was going on at that time in the 70s, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, so I always kind of took that approach, you know. I mean, I, I considered Southern Rock Opera to be a very, a very political record, you know, mm-hmm. with all of the George Wallace stuff and all that. And, uh, uh, but, but starting with American band, we've been, we made a kind of very conscious decision that the, that record and this last one are set right now. And there isn't, there isn't some story to, you know, necessarily, you know, ease the, <laughs> ease the, ease you into it. Mm-hmm. Um, we are going to get back to politics, but I do want to ask you just a bit about the making of the album itself. Uh, you went to Memphis for this. Yes. So tell me a little bit about that. We went to Sam Phillips' recording service uh, studio that when, um, you know, of course, Sam, Sam's actually from our hometown. He, he, he grew up, he, he grew up two farms over from my grandmother. They're the same age mm-hmm. and they, they went to elementary school together even. Okay. And, uh, uh, you know, of course, he moved to Memphis and you know basically discovered rock and roll and and uh, Sun Studios and and Elvis and Carl Perkins and all of that and and uh, around 1960 or so when he sold Sun Records and the Sun Studios, he took his money and he built like his dream studio and mm. so that's the place where we recorded our record. It was like a time capsule from like 1962, basically, uh, with with some early 70s updates here or there and uh, uh, some amazing old tube gear and just uh, and those echo chambers he designed and built three different echo chambers of different sizes into the actual building and so we're like running our stuff through those echo chambers and really digging the way it sounded and kind of being inspired by it did it it change the the sound of this album from other albums i think it did i think i think a combination of that and just you know how the bands evolved too, because mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, because uh, we've been, you know, we've we've we haven't had any kind of a personnel lineup change or anything for about eight years now, and uh, and so this this incarnation of the band is just really really gelled in a way that I don't think we were ever able to quite uh, achieve before, because mm-hmm. in our more tumultuous earlier days, <laughs> uh, and I I heard. There was a celebrity sighting there. There was, yeah. Yep. Um, Peter Grounick, who wrote the Sam Phillips book, came and visited us. And uh, 
And he had Mick Jagger with him, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, did, did you talk to Mick Jagger there or? Yeah, a little bit for, for mm-hmm. a second, you know, and uh, um, we knew that Peter was coming and uh, – and of course, I'd read I'd read his Sam Phillips book. I've read probably all his books, and uh, and so I knew he was coming, and I was looking forward to, to meeting him or seeing him. I've met him before, uh, but seeing him again. But uh, and um, then when Mick Jagger stuck his head in, it was uh, a bit, it was it was a bit of a trip. <laughs> I'll bet. Uh, you know, the song you just played describes uh, sort of how uh, homogeneous sort of the American landscape is become but you guys grew up in a in a very particular part of Alabama. Now when you say Alabama to most northerners, they have a certain idea and it's probably Birmingham or Mobile or right. football or oil or whatever it is. My cousin Vinny. Your cousin Vinny. Was that in Alabama? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um they're not thinking Amy Lou Harris or <laughs> you know any of the people who are yeah. actually from there. What was what was that part of Alabama like growing up? I mean, when we were growing up, it was it was kind of isolated in a way because uh, there's no major highway through our town. Uh, there's a pretty major waterway through there as far as the Tennessee River. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of barges that floated through. But, you know, the closest airport of any size, you know, was at least two hours away and the interstate was an hour away. And, and uh, we're kind of right between three cities, each about two to three hours away, Birmingham and Nashville and Memphis. We're kind of right mm-hmm. in the middle of, of the, you know, of that triangle. But yeah, the Shoals area, it's four four cities all that border each other. But I would describe the four of them collectively as a small town with a lot more people in it than you usually see in a small town, but it's still very much a big small town. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it also, I mean, to the rest of the world, because of Muscle Shoals, where... Your father, Dave right. Hood, played for years and years on some of the greatest soul records ever. Right. Mick uh, Jagger came to his studio too. Oh, <laughs> yeah. did he? Yeah, yeah, I should hope so. But uh, yeah, the you know they the Stones recorded Brown Sugar and uh, Wild Horses, and, and uh, you got to move there. And uh, uh, but um, and at that time, I mean, it was a dry county. You know, it was uh, when I, when we were growing up, it was still a dry county. I was they, almost in high school before we had legal alcohol. Was that right? There. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, wow. So it was a it junior was a, high must have been just rough. in time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they I, saw I, you coming. Yeah. They needed to raise some taxes. I always uh, say the best thing for, you know, for hard drinking teenagers to live in a dry county because the bootleggers don't care how old you are, you know, and mm-hmm. if you don't, and, you know, if you don't have legal liquor, then you're just going to have illegal liquor. I mean, it's no, it's not like you're going to keep anyone from doing what they want to mm-hmm. do. There's a certain, image, you know, uh, musically at least, of kind of a racial harmony um, people associate with Muscle Shoals. Right. Um, this is a place that great soul records were made by, you know, biracial bands. And well, I guess right. the band itself was mainly white. But yeah, they were, they the were artists. mainly white, at least, at least dad's group, some of the, some of the later groups, it got a little more integrated. But, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, my, I mean, in the heart of the George Wallace era, my dad was making his living backing up Aretha Franklin and Wilson Pickett and Bobby Womack, and mm-hmm. Etta James, and, you know, all these amazing records that came out of there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yet, you know, at, at times, especially in the earlier days, you know, I don't think some of the, you know, some of the African-American artists that were recording there were particularly comfortable going out and having dinner 
mm-hmm. you know, in some of the restaurants there. I think it got, I mean, it wasn't nearly as bad there as like what you see from like Birmingham and, and you know, we, we didn't have Bull Connor and, you know, they weren't necessarily sicking police dogs on people. But it still was a closed-minded, you know, Bible Belt, religious. Yeah, I, I used to uh, have to pass by a, there was uh, a radio station pretty much from where I lived to get to anywhere. Um, it was a black-owned AM radio station, so the WZZA, the soul of the shoals. And um, it uh, I, very often uh, it wasn't uncommon at all to pass by there and see that it had been vandalized again, you mm-hmm. know, um, some kind of racist epitaph spray-painted on the door, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you had both. You, you <laughs> <laughs> right. You had you had a little of both worlds. Yeah. yeah. And is it is it changed in a way that we'd recognize from the song you just played? Is it become more commodified it's, and big box? And- I mean, it's 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 kind of gotten cool in a way because they've, you know, when we were growing up. Like, the whole music thing that was happening there was a secret. I mean, it was almost like a secret society. I mean, I learned really early on that I didn't go to school and talk about what my dad did. It was not something really? I was going to talk about at school. Because if, if he and, were my uh, dad, that was literally all I would talk oh, about, I even today. I mean, it's like I was, I was like 30 before all of a sudden I realized, okay, I think it's okay for me to talk about my dad now. But, but it was kind of like a—it was almost like they were in a secret society because they were—I mean, they were afraid if they got too much attention, someone would try to stop them from doing what they were doing, mm-hmm. you know, and but they knew if they just kind of stayed under the radar and you know and 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 donated money to the little league teams and and you know did 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 the you know the the nice community stuff that you know that they could do, they would generally get left alone to kind of do what they were doing. And, okay. Uh, okay. If there if there if there is a little league team sponsored by the Swampers, I want that. <laughs> I, I, really, I really want that <laughs> shirt. Really. At yeah. one point, there definitely was. We should explain Swampers yeah. was the name for the right. What's also called the Muscle Shoal. A lot of that rhythm to section. attract a lot of the artists there too, especially the ones who were on the more famous mm-hmm. the end of the spectrum at the time. Because I mean, Elton John could probably walk down the street there right now and not get recognized. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I mean, you know. I mean. You know, the Rolling Stones stayed at the Holiday Inn right there, you know, right across the river from Muscle Shoals in Florence. And mm-hmm. uh, the first time they've been able to walk around in public in years at that point. Yeah. yeah. You know, Linda, Linda Ronstadt, legend has it, Linda Ronstadt was the was the first girl to go sit at the counter at the pool room and order. They, uh, there was a pool room in Florence that had like uh, good chili burgers and stuff like that. And it was it was you know, kind of an unwritten law that it was men only. This would have been like 71 maybe when right. she recorded there. And uh, and she wanted to go to the pool room and shoot pool and uh, sit at the counter and did because Linda Ronstadt did what she wanted, you know. Right. And uh, she wasn't a big star yet, but she was already – she was already Linda Ronstadt, you know, and wearing her cutoff, wearing her cutoff shorts, no less, you know, yeah. at the pool room, and uh, and you know they served her, and that was you know was a pretty pretty nice way f- to have change occur, but uh, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I mean now you know it's in some ways unrecognizable to me because it's 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 a kind of a cool town now. They've embraced their musical heritage, and you know we've got a you know we've got hipsters and a boutique hotel and a you know a, a fancy barber shop yeah. and, you know, a barber shop with guys in handlebar mustaches and their jeans rolled up you yeah, know okay you know, it's it's it's, <laughs> right. it's kind of crazy so, so they've just turned it into brooklyn's yeah. what you're telling yeah, me. Well, they like to, damn yeah. it yeah 
Yeah, that's Brooklyn kind of is a big box store now. You just find sure. it all over the country. We'll be back with more of Bruce's interview with Mike Cooley and Patterson Hood of the Drive-By Truckers after a quick break. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. We're back with Mike Cooley and Patterson Hood performing Grievance Merchants from their latest album, The Unraveling. Thank you. That was Grievous Merchants. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me about the writing of that song? Um, I started thinking about everything that went into it. Uh, and, and after that, uh, the Parkland, Florida shooting that uh, mobilized those kids so much, I was pretty moved by what they were up to, you know. But uh, uh, the predictable reaction they got, um, being accused of uh, being less than sincere, they were called crisis actors. They were discredited, insulted, and made fun of. Um, and uh, 
I don't know if that particular shooter or not was one. I think he may have been, but there was a pattern um, of all these young men that were committing these acts, you know, um, and every whenever it was over and you'd get a look at their, uh, at their laptops, their phones, what they'd been looking at, uh, what they'd been posting, liking on social media. It was kind of a who's who of the usual suspects. Um, maybe not the same names, but definitely the same message. Um, and that was that was what it all boiled down to to me, was this, this cottage industry whose product was grievance and victimhood um, to mostly young white guys, and maybe sometimes not so young. And um, it, at that time, uh, you know, that, that, uh, the, uh, that Alex Jones guy is probably the most household name of all of them. Um, I never went far enough down that rabbit hole to even know who most of the rest of the names are because I just don't want, you know, I don't want that stuff to start mm-hmm. popping up on my phone when I'm in public. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, but, yeah, it was, uh, they all seem to uh, have some kind of problem with women. They had uh, ex-girlfriends, ex-wives with restraining orders. They'd been arrested for stalking. They couldn't get the kind of attention from women they thought they deserved. Um, that they were, honestly, that they were, their whiteness was losing its value was the message that was constantly being pumped at them. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not your fault. They're kind of, you know, sending them that message that, you know, it's not because you're socially awkward or because you inevitably open your mouth and say the wrong thing. Or because you you know, it's got to be this. It's got to be this thing or that thing. This ism or that ism that's turning these people against you. And uh, and you know, you go far enough down it, and uh, you're you know, you've you've completely self radicalized, which a lot of these guys have. And you know, you I I, I just don't want you know I, I can't draw a line to people on uh, the internet or the TV or the radio saying something and somebody doing something. Of course not, but I'm not going to let them off the hook either. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are true believers in what they're peddling and they're pure evil. And some are just con jobs who are in it for the attention, the money, and the ratings, and they're more than pure evil. Mm-hmm. Is there, uh, there's a wonderful line in that song, uh, conspiracy to is it dilute their blood? Yeah, or? yeah, that's, well, um, that's, that's a, yeah. Uh, it's a great line, but it, it connects to that idea of, Lost hand, uh, manhood, mm-hmm. emasculation, mm-hmm. which is very much needing to see um, non-white men as uh, sexual predators, mm-hmm. um, and 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 how it's uh, in in some grand conspiracy to uh, get white women to have fewer white babies. Yeah, I mean they really do. That's really out there. That's re- literally what these people are feeding on. Do you think that connects to a bigger sense in the South of? being looked down upon um, by the elites and, and, you know. That's always been part of it. I mean, yeah, definitely anti-elitism, anti-intellectualism. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, growing up around, you know, working class Southern white men, the, there was all uh, uh, at men or who were more educated or more uh, successful. Um, there was always that sense that he thinks he's better than I am. And mm-hmm. maybe some of them did, but he got above his raisin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, maybe, maybe some of them did. I'm sure some of them did. You know, or they they look at uh, academics and oh, they they don't they think they're so smart. Well, they kind of are. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, they, whether they are or not is not why that person thinks that they're going to think that no matter what. And 
it's just a it, there, there's definitely a, a blue collar chip on, on the shoulder. Well, it's all you know. Fear of the other is such a you know, which has been a, a prevalent thing that our band has written about for years and years. That's been that's been kind of an ongoing theme, you know, and 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 our records kind of from that day one. But uh, and um, and it's like there's always somebody to blame, some other that's that's taking what's rightfully mine or whatever, you know. And you know, and I mean, you know, our our current president. I mean, that's what. That's how he got elected, was capitalizing on that over and over and over and over. They're coming across the border to get your jobs and, you know, probably take your women too, you know, it's that whole— And now they've, now they've morphed into these magic immigrants that can take your job and still not work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Never thought of it that way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's interesting, because you're from the South, you've written uh, quite a few songs where, for example, George Wallace appears. You guys grew up. I mean, Wallace was still probably governor at some. You oh, probably God. remember him as governor. He, he, he governor. was governor into the eighties. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he got elected his fourth term my freshman year in college. Okay, yeah. yeah. That's interesting. I mean, you and I. I don't remember the song, but I think you had a line, something to the effect that um, there's racism everywhere, but George Wallace. Gave it a Southern accent. I'm not remembering the phrase well, exactly. From right. then on, if you're going to have a racist in a movie, you're going to give him a Southern accent, flat out. It's just, it's like, uh, that's one of the ways that you establish the character of, of of being a racist is you give him that accent. You know, yeah. there's but a James like, Bond like, movie, you know, Live and Let Die. You know, the, the the you know, they they made sure to set, set it in Louisiana so that the, so that the, cop could be a redneck cop you know mm-hmm. they said it so uh but is the flip side of that that if somebody has a southern accent people then assume he's a racist i mean to some, some extent may. some do i'm yeah, sure yeah. you know and uh i mean i'm you know i'm sure that i'm sure there's been people who've never listened to our music that would just assume we're something that we probably aren't you know, whether it's racist or just, you know, whatever, whatever you want to, whatever presumptions you want to make about Southerners in, in the South, you know, and, and, you know, it's like, I, I tell people a lot, you know, it's like Trump won Alabama by 60%, which is horrific, but that's still 40% that voted against him. That's still, you know, over a million people who feel as strongly opposed to this as as I do, you know, or as, you know, as someone in a different state does. It's just it's just a matter of how the demographics of the population, how it how it all settles. Mm-hmm. But given how polarized the times are now, uh, there is probably not the same audience for a sophisticated, nuanced take on certain kinds of characters. And I'm right. wondering... Uh, another example is you, you had a song, I think it was Southern Thing. Right. Uh, where and, and you wrote about this in The Times, which is that people were, were bringing out Confederate flags. Yeah. And it made you uncomfortable. It was, hor- it was, hor- it was horrified. Yeah. So you stopped playing the song largely? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, we, and we you seldom pl- We'll occasionally play it. And even then, it's. It's only in an environment where I feel comfortable with with knowing that the people I'm playing it for know they get it, they get where I'm coming from with it, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that song's very rarely played. Are there other songs that have 
that are now in that category in the last few years because of changing politics, things that you may have felt your intentions were right, but it just is not going to be heard in the same way? Probably. I can't think of any examples offhand, but but uh, but probably. I mean, you know, in, in the case of that song, you know, I mean, I'm not sure I did a, I'm not sure I did my job adequately in writing that song. I mean, it's got a, you know, it's got a really cool guitar lick. <laughs> and, it, it, <laughs> and it was always a crowd pleaser, you know, because it it it's a good rock song as far as musically on all of that maybe. But uh, the point I was trying to make in writing it, I'm not sure if I adequately made it. The, the mere fact that it was so misunderstood always kind of made me question the actual writing of the song itself, you know. The, the point I was trying to make maybe clumsily was uh, that if you ask 10 Southern people what you know, people always refer to this like the Southern thing. If you ask ten different Southerners what that is, you get ten very different answers, often that conflict with each other. Sometimes from the same person, you'll get different answers that conflict with each other. And Depends so, on what time of the day you ask them? Yeah, and so that song has a lot of has a lot of statements that people state as fact themselves personally in describing being a Southerner. That and and over the course of the song, there's all these other contradictory statements to that, and I think uh, I think I really maybe underestimated the how easily that could get misconstrued as as the song actually making those statements. You know, I didn't I didn't view it that way when I wrote it, and when I realized that kind of the hard way, you know, it was specifically a show we were playing at this festival, this outdoor festival. In Georgia, in Atlanta, and uh, we were actually on the same bill with Big Boy from uh, from Outcast. I'm a huge Outcast fan, and uh, and um, and there were people waving. The record was still pretty new then. There were people, you know, with with rebel flags and uh, that like pull them out when that song comes on. And I was I was mortified, and it's like wow, people think that's what I'm saying, and that's not. You know, mm. so so it's made me question the actual writing of the song. Oh, interesting. But you are part of the song is in it's in a character. Sure. And you sure. guys you guys write a lot of a, a lot, lot about kind of desperate characters, like characters sort of in the yeah. edge. And people sure. tend to not get that. Really? Right. Yeah. When, when anybody does it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know it's, Well, speaking of Randy Newman, Sail Away is not a song I think he'd be it, really comfortable about right. playing right now. It's an it's an amazing song, yeah. Or or you know or Rednecks, which is also an amazing song, you know. And uh, but it's also you know a song that you know it, it it's polarizing even to people who do get it, you know. And I mean, when we were writing what the record that became the Southern Rock Opera, we were. We spent a lot of time listening to the Good Old Boys album by Randy Newman. To me, that was that was always the original Southern rock opera, you know. <laughs> and uh, it, it just, you know, I, I've always loved him doing that. His writing of how he can write from a point of view of a character who might be a, at times, a pretty dislikable character. And uh, I, I think that's a valid. I think that's a valid art form, but it is something. Particularly in these times, it's 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 a risk and uh, and sort of uh, you know I'm 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 still grappling with all of that. Is it is that a particular burden of Southern writers? I remember um, Flannery O'Connor at one point talked about uh, 
she was always asked why Southern writers always write about freaks. And her answer, and I'm, again, paraphrasing, was something to the effect that, well, there are freaks everywhere. We're just better at recognizing them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you guys write about people, you know, who are very sort of edgy characters. Sure. Sure. Um, do you feel an extra duty to, to somehow make them sympathetic to... Not necessarily, I no? don't think. I don't know. I, 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 what I don't ever want to be is condescending to them, even if I disagree with them. I don't want to be condescending to them. I don't want to be... I want to at least try to write about it fairly and then let the listener make up their own mind as to where they land about that, which right now in this damn current climate in itself, that is even a risk, you know, and maybe it always was. Maybe I was naive to it, you know, because I, I, that certainly could be possible too. Right. But uh, I, I want to be, I want to, I want to be true to what I'm writing about though, whether, whether, whether I personally agree or not. I mean, you know, I, I had a, I had a very different upbringing than most of the people I know from where I'm from, you mm-hmm. know, but, but I don't necessarily, you know, need to impose that on all the characters I write about. When we come back, we'll pick back up with Bruce's discussion with Patterson Hood and Mike Cooley. And if you want to hear more about Randy Newman's Good Old Boys album, check out episode four of season four of Malcolm Gladwell's other podcast, Revisionist History. More after this. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. 
Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. We're back with Mike Cooley and Patterson Hood. Before playing the trucker's new song, Thoughts and Prayers, Patterson talks about what inspired him to write this song. This one's not really in a character, I don't guess, but it's, uh, I mean, again, it was inspired by, you know, the stuff going on, you know, the shootings and 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 all of that, you know, and, and again, talking to my kids about it and everything. But uh, um, this song's called Thoughts and Prayers. Thank you. Uh, you told you explained a little bit where the song came from, but I need to ask you where one particular part of that song came from, mm-hmm. which is the just beautiful image of the the flat earther, earthist, I guess. Right. Uh, realizing he's the earth is around just before he hits the ground. You remember where did a that come years from? ago when uh, like some guy like went way up. Huh? It was like some kind of a flat earth thing. A guy like like launched himself and really no, I didn't know. Yeah. It was like it was it was in the news right around the time that I wrote the song, and and just at that perfect moment when I came to that part of the, it was time to like write a bridge for the song. It popped in my head, then uh, it just kind of. Uh, you know, I got lucky. <laughs> <laughs> you got very lucky. Yeah. That's uh, that must be the NASA influence in yeah. northern Alabama. <laughs> yeah, putting people on the moon. Yeah. Uh, but it weirdly, which you've also written about, it makes it a strangely optimistic song. As angry as that song may sound to people, you know, after that, I'm not sure if it's a chorus or a verse. You actually talk about people finding a solution right. to all this. Are you uh, are you actually optimistic? Uh, at this point, I'm trying on that particular issue or on any particular issue. I'm I'm trying. It's a work in progress. I'm I'm trying. You know, I, I do I do get a lot of optimism from the young people I'm around, and because uh, I'm I'm getting old, and uh, but I'm around a lot of young people, probably a lot more than people my age normally are, because because I've I've got. Still have small kids. I'm around a lot of their friends. You know, our house is kind of that house that that a lot of the my kids' friends feel happy congregating at. And uh, and uh, our bands on the road. We meet people all over the country, but we also our crew is all these you know guys in their twenties who mm-hmm. are, are amazing. You know, and uh, and um, and I get. So I get I get a lot of optimism out of out of that and uh, or what optimism I can hang on to I guess uh, you know I, I'm I'm 
I've always thought of myself as a as an optimistic person, even if I was kind of cynical and and maybe sometimes pragmatic about it. I've I've always I've always I've always felt like I had an undercurrent of that, and that was that's been a that's been a real issue the last few years because it's taken a real hard beating after you know after, with everything that's been going on and uh, hanging on to that's been sometimes I feel like I'm hanging on to it for dear life like like a life raft even and uh and um but I'm I'm still hanging on to it <laughs> mm-hmm. is it important to you that your music and your shows reflect that I would like it to but mm-hmm. I don't want again I don't want to be dishonest about it you know and so I mean you know it's definitely an underlying theme I think in 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 this record is the trying to hang on to that and uh uh cuz uh you know I think that I think the act of going to a rock show is a cathartic can be a really cathartic uplifting wonderful thing you know I think you know I think I get from going to rock shows probably what some people would get would get from going to church or whatever. You know, it, it's always been sort of that that thing for me like that. And and I would love for it to be have that experience for the people who come to see us play. And uh, you know, I want it to be fun and 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 there to be some some bit of uplift to it. But you know, at the same time, I'm. You know, it's, these are tough times, which makes us need it more than ever in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. The songs are just beautiful. It was, it was a just, pleasure. Thanks. It was lovely hearing them just with the two guitars. Please don't say that to the rest of the band. <laughs> um, it was great. Thank you very much. Thanks to Mike Cooley and Patterson Hood from the Drive-By Truckers for talking to Bruce and for playing songs from the new album, Ben Raveling. The album's out now, so be sure to check it out along with the rest of their catalog. And if you're in need for a drive-by trucker's primer, check out our favorite songs and a playlist we made on brokenrecordpodcast.com. Broken Record is produced with help from Jason Gambrell, Milo Bell, Leah Rose, Matt Laboza, and Martin Gonzalez for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Candy Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Thanks for listening. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, 
you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.